As you know, last Sunday we, uh, we finished the study of the Gospel of Matthew. We were in there for quite a while. But we left off in the final verses with Jesus in Matthew 28 giving the mission to the church, his mission to the church. Let me refresh all of us with the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus commanded, he said, all authority has been, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, you're going to have to bear with me uh, over the next season here at CCF. Um, normally, I teach verse by verse through the Bible. You know that. Um, but we're going to take a break from that and kind of go topically for a little bit. We do that from time to time. But we'll come back to the verse by verse study through a book uh, sometime soon. But for now, we're going to focus on a church, uh, uh, for the church, basically on the fundamentals. And the fundamental that we're going to start to f- uh, focus on is discipleship. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we'll be focusing on that in the coming weeks. We're going to be focusing on discipleship. But before we do, we must understand, and I must understand, that there has to be a change here at CCF. There has to be a fundamental change about how we go about stuff. And I think we're in, this is what the Spirit is is leaning in at the church, in our direction and our prioritization to harmonize with what Jesus clearly commanded us. I mean, I have been so convicted over the last couple weeks reading Matthew 28. And I say this because at the end of Matthew, Jesus, the whole pinnacle, you start out in the book of Matthew. I'm not going to reteach the book of Matthew. Don't worry. But you start out and it's all about who he is, like the lineage of the king. Starts out with the genealogies. Well, he ends it by saying, I've got all the authority in heaven and on earth, and everything is under my command. You are my disciples. You go into all the world and make disciples. That's, that's the, and then Matthew, he's, it's like he's out. He mic drops. He's done. That's what Matthew leads to. To Jesus, the head of the church, the head of all believers saying, you go into all the world. And Jesus clearly told us what we're to be aiming at, what we are to be busy about, the direction we are all to be pulling in individually and together, the direction we are all to be going as a body, as individuals in this fellowship the local church, the global church, this is what we're to be about. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations. And I I don't know about you, but I can sometimes read the words and not apply what Jesus is saying. Anyone else? When it's like as clear as day. And if the culmination of the book of Matthew is Jesus saying, I have all authority, go make disciples, we need to listen to Jesus. Would you say that's, that's a good application? We need to listen to Jesus. I need to listen to Jesus as a pastor. The elders need to listen to Jesus. I'm not saying you aren't. You know what I'm saying? It's like Matt's not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, and his word is the authority over the head of the church. And if he says that we're all to go, 
doesn't make a difference what I think or how I feel or what I think the emphasis should be. He's king. And so there has to be a response. There has to be a response from me. There has to be a response from us to him and his authority as we talked about. We must begin to focus more fully on what God has clearly called us to do, to go and make disciples. Now, we saw last Sunday a disciple in its most elemental understanding is one who is born again and one who obeys Jesus. If you look at the end of Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, we talked about how the baptism aspect is just saying that there has been a radical change in someone's life. They've been born of the Spirit. And that physical baptism is a picture of the spiritual change that's happened. when you've got to go make disciples. In other words, preach the gospel that people would be born again and baptized into the kingdom. He does the baptizing, and we do the symbolic baptism. And then you got to go teach them how to obey me. So there's a hunger and a thirst that happens in a newborn that we are going to go hunger and thirst for righteousness. On cue, thank you. So quite simply put, what is a disciple? And we're going to get into this more as we look at what a disciple, because if we're called to go make disciples, it'd be important to know what a disciple is. And am I one? Because I'm going to duplicate whatever that is. So quite simply put, a disciple is a person who believes in and obeys Jesus. That's a disciple. And some questions I think we should ask that I'm asking before we begin this endeavor well, as we begin this endeavor, are simply, am I a disciple? Am I born again, and am I obeying Jesus Christ? Good questions. And secondly, if we're called by the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, to go and make disciples, to bring people to faith to Him, and to teach them to obey Him, let me ask you, are we here at CCF doing that? Am I doing that? These are hard questions. And are the leadership, starting with me, obeying Jesus' clear command to make disciples? Am I doing that? Am I busy about that? Is that what I do? Are the elders resolved to pursue and to lead us towards that end? I know they are. Are the servant leaders in this church devoted to making disciples? Every single leader in this church, are they going, I know my marching orders from the Lord Jesus. We're all going in the same direction. I am devoted to making disciples of Jesus Christ. Are you, as believers in Jesus Christ, prioritizing your, your time, your talent, your treasure, your toil, towards making disciples? These are hard questions, aren't they? And if anything, this is more of a message to me than it is to you. So it starts with me. But I'm not going to let you out of it. Now, we might all say, yes, I am devoted towards that. But I've been convicted over this as we finished Matthew, and I believe the Lord is calling us to a radical obedience in this call. I think we have to have a major shift in how we do, do things. And I'm not sure how exactly that's going to pan out, but I want to 
follow in obedience and seek with the elders what that looks like and, and, and humbly pray that we would pray towards this because it's not an option. And let me illustrate this in a different way. Raise your hands if you have been born, a born-again follower of Jesus Christ for no more than one month. Raise your hands. Two months, no more than two months. Three months. Four months. Five months. Six months. A year. Two years. Three years. Four years. People are going, oh, maybe. Five years. A couple hands go up. Let me ask you again. Are we making disciples? Let me ask another question. How many of you are actively discipling someone? Raise your hand. Good job, Marcus. Good job. Good job. Good job. That's time spent together with someone with the aim of teaching someone how to obey all that he commanded us. Life on life, in the word together, praying together, acts of service together, and so forth. Modeling Jesus, explaining life, working through issues, all those types of things. How many of you are actively discipling someone in general? How about in this fellowship? Raise your hand. A few people. How many of you are actively being discipled by someone? Raise your hand. Two, three, four. Okay, I know there's a little bit of intrepidation. How many of you are needing to be discipled? How many of you go, like, there is a lack. I need, I need, I need help. I know I should be further along than I am, whatever it might be. Every hand should be going up. We all need to be discipled. And we all should be a part of discipling one another. See what I'm saying here? I think you can see what the Lord has convicted my heart over. And I think we all know it. It's the elephant in the room. Why is, it, why is there transfer growth but not growth within? You know, and Jesus has commanded us clearly. And, and how have we responded at, in leadership and as a fellowship to this clear command? And this reflects on my lack of leadership. And I just have to ask for your forgiveness. I'm sorry. You know, and I'm in the process of repenting before the Lord, you know, and I've been processing this. We're going to process it together as an elder board, but this is, it's so clear. And yet it's not happening. And that starts with me. And so pray for me. And hold me accountable to it. Please. And, and I ask that you bear with me as I, as I seek to respond to the clear command of the Lord and the eldership and, and to humbly, humbly submit and allow His Spirit through His Word to change us and to transform us and to move us and to lead us and to reinvigorate us, which He will, because it's His will. <laughs> it's as clear as day. I, already, I know the Scriptures. I'll explain them to you later. 
But it begins with repentance. That's, that's what it does. Now, some of you might be going, I'm doing great in this. Like I said, bear with me. I'm not. And I happen to be in a position where I'm leading and failing. And so, turning away from disobedience and responding in faith to him through obedience. You know, I feel like, in a sense, um, you know, we're all, we're all kind of like a Peter in this right now. Jesus has had first called Peter on the shores of Galilee. Remember that? What did, Peter, what did Jesus say to Peter the very first time he saw him? What did he say? Follow me, and I will make you an awesome churchgoer. What did he say? Follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And I feel like, what did Peter do at that point? What did he do? He dropped everything, and he followed Jesus, and Jesus made him a fisher of men. Now, as you know the story, he kept going along, and then he ends up fumbling a little bit, doesn't he? He ends up denying Jesus three times. We just read about that. And Jesus meets him after his resurrection on the shore of Galilee in the same spot. And what does he say to Peter? Well, Peter's like, well, what about John and all this stuff? They start talking, and then Jesus says, don't you worry about John. You what? Follow me. And I kind of feel like that's where we are as a fellowship. That's where I am been walking with the Lord. There's more time with the Lord than not with the Lord. And, and it's kind of like the Lord's coming to us and say, okay, there's a lot of great things going on. But you follow me. This is a major area we need to adjust. And I will make you what I've called you to do from the very beginning, to be fishers of men. I think we're in that moment, and I believe the Lord is saying to me, to you, once again, follow me, and I will make you this. It's not something we can muster up. It's something the Lord does within us as we're connected to him. And so, CCF, the mission has not changed. The shore of Galilee call is the same for us. Follow me, and I will make you what I want to make you, which is fishers of men. This is his will for us as a church, to repent and respond to that. It starts with me. And the verses that have been on my heart this week is Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus. Please open up to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And we're just going to quickly go through this. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Let me read it for you, and then we'll come back and I'll point some things out. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. I'm not going to explain all that. He says to them, as he's, Jesus is writing to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. I know all these things about you. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned 
the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have, uh, th- yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I think this letter has a lot of encouragement and application for us. And this is what's on my heart for us as a, as a fellowship. As we begin to make disciples, it starts with repentance. Because that's the very first call that Jesus and John the Baptist and everybody had. He says, the kingdom is at repent. That's the first words out of Jesus. And if we're living off mission, if we're living in disobedience, no matter how many good things that are going on, the Lord Jesus is going to say, hey, I love all these things that are going on. These are awesome. But I've got this one thing, and it happens to be a pretty big thing. And if you don't address it, and if it's not changed, then there's going to be judgment. That's the gist of this. But there's a lot of great things, and so let's repent. That's, that's, that's the Matt paraphrased version of, of what we just read. And so I want to start out by saying that I believe it's important to have a mindset when we are seeking to correct course. It's important to have a certain mindset, and this is it. In this culture, if you say something wrong about something, you think the whole thing's messed up. Anybody see that in culture? You say one thing, hey, we aren't making disciples. Well, it's just not, and everybody just like blows up, right? Who are you? And I'm, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. Notice how Jesus handles this with this church. He says, look at all the great things that are going on here. But here's something that's so key, so fundamental, so important that you can't continue on without it. So you've got a correct course, and I'm here with you to do it. So it's important to know that we, that the Lord, there's a lot of great things that God is doing here at the church. There's a lot of wonderful things that he's doing through us. Amen? And that's not to negate, this is not to negate any of those things. And so we're going to start with the encouragement that God has for this church. There's a lot of encouragement in this church, and I think we need to not, you know, just pretend like it doesn't exist. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. That word know means to intimately know. Jesus intimately knows the things that we are doing well. Isn't that awesome? He can see things that we don't even know we're doing well. He is such a just judge. He sees it as it truly is. And when Jesus looks at his church, he sees the true picture. He sees the things that we're doing that glorify him. And we need to recognize that God is doing great things in among us. Amen? He's doing it through awesome people that he's redeemed. We had that this last week where we gave honor and credit to those who were serving among us. There are great things that are happening in this fellowship. And I love that about you guys. You guys love one another well. I love that. For Ephesus, Jesus acknowledges, first of all, their works. I know your works and your toil, Jesus said. And that word works and toil, there's two different words in the Greek. But the word works there just is saying all the things I'm going to tell you that you're doing well, those are the works. I know your works. 
But then he uses another Greek word, which is toil. I know your toil. And that has the idea to labor to the point of exhaustion. I know that you work, and your work ethic is that you just toil hard for me. You labor for me to the point of exhaustion. I see it. I know it. That's what the Lord says. They're devoted and dedicated, and Jesus sees them and commends them for it. They weren't slackers. Secondly, he saw their patient endurance. Look at that. For those of you who like the Greek, this is the word hupomone. Yes, I know you like it. Hupomone. I had fun teaching about hupomone on, um, with the kids here at school. It was fun. I kind of did the picture of a, of a basketball hoop, and you're trying to make it, and you just keep going until you can get swishes, you know? It's like you just keep, keep, keep going towards the prize. You keep going, you keep going until you get it. And the idea is that this church did not stop, even in hardship. They just kept going. They patiently endured. They, even in, in the face of opposition, and it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to move forward. It was like, man, we're doing this for the Lord. There was a, there was a mindset of his glory. There's a patient endurance in them. And I think that was something the Lord looked at and said, this is awesome. Thirdly, he saw in them a personal purity. They were a church that did not allow evil to last long among them. And this is important. This is something that Jesus values. They didn't tolerate evil people existing within the church. That does not mean that we don't all sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's just saying they didn't allow it to fester. It wasn't a place where the culture became the church, where they allowed the outside influences and the outside way of doing things and, and all the politics of all that to infiltrate the church. It was like, no, this is his church, and we're going to do it his way according to his will. And he wants a holy church separated from the world. And, and they leaned into that. They were pure. They were set apart. They didn't allow evil to flourish. It's not a noble thing. Jesus commended them for being pure in this way as a fellowship. And then similarly, the Lord commended them in their spiritual discernment. Many churches are not spiritually discerning. They don't understand they have wolves among them that are teaching them horrible stuff and all that kind of stuff. And so he's saying, man, you guys test those who say they are apostles sent from God. That's the word for apostles, the ones who are sent People who say they're speaking on behalf of God, you test them. In other words, they knew the word well enough to where they could discern what was of the Lord and what was not, and they could tell when people were off and what their motives were. And he says, you tested them and you kicked them out because there were wolves. And this is what Paul said in chapter 20 as he is of, of Ephesians when he's on the shore. He says, hey, when I leave, wolves are going to come in among you. Take watch over the flock which God has entrusted you. He's talking to the elders. They did that, which was an awesome thing. They were obedient in that. Jesus is commending them for that. Wonderful things. And similarly, you know, you know uh, the spiritual discernment was there, but he says finally in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently. There's that word again, hupomone. I know you're enduring, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. And so there's a perseverance in the church. There's a persevering for his namesake. Listen, these weren't just religious people. They were 
doing everything they were doing with the Lord in mind, it seemed. And so there's a lot of encouragement, and Jesus commends them over and over again. Jesus saw that it wasn't a fleeting thing. This is who they were. They were Christians. It's awesome. If the Lord were to write a personal letter to us, I think there might be many of these things attached as well. I see these attributes in us. You know, that you are a fellowship who works and who toils to the point of exhaustion. You know, I know many of you are constantly working behind the scenes. I shared it last week. And people don't see what you do and how you expend yourself personally and mentally and physically. And you're just giving yourself for the work of the Lord, for the people of the Lord. The Lord sees it. And it's an encouragement. Be encouraged. The Lord sees that. And it seems that we too are a fellowship that patiently endures hardship. When hard times come, this church doesn't scatter. We come together. We seek the Lord. There's just a core who loves Jesus here, and I think that's just, that's precious. There isn't all the infighting that goes on. There isn't all that nonsense. There's just a patient endurance when difficult times, whether it be outside circumstances or inside circumstances, there's just a, a love for one another, a come-togetherness, a, we're going to endure for His name's sake. That's in you. I see that. And I would say also that we're a fellowship that doesn't have a long shelf life for evil among us. That's a good thing. You know, we don't let the culture dictate what the church does. We let the word dictate what the, what the church does. We live counterculture. And that's beautiful to the Lord. And like Ephesus, we test leaders. You guys test me on what I say. We test people when they teach. We don't just let anybody get up and teach. There has to be an understanding. There's a discernment. There's a process that goes on because we value truth. We value his truth. It's not something that we put personality over, you know, you know or popularity over things. It doesn't make a difference who you are if you're not aligned with him and in the spirit in which he wants you to communicate it, you're not leading, you're not teaching. Does that make sense? So there's a longer process. We follow the word in that. That's what Timothy and Titus say. God tests people. You can't just let it go. And that's what they were doing. That's what we do. There's a, there's a love for the Lord and truth because we know that when leaders mess up, the whole church suffers, right? When leaders lead, I lead you to a lack of discipleship right? And so that's not good. <laughs> so case in point, we can be blind to our own stuff, but, but we should be encouraged by the work that God's doing here. And I want you to walk away with the encouragement. So Jesus knows what we're doing. Well. However, there's also a need for change in the, in the church of Ephesus. And, he's, and this is the change that Ephesus had, but I have this against you. That's scary from coming from the Lord. But you have abandoned the love you had at first for all the great things that were going on. There was one thing that was like cancer among them. One thing that was a serious issue, issue and it was a major one. And I hope you can see with me, this is very, it's very possible to be a, a church that has a lot of God-glorifying things going on, a lot of 
godly people in it. And all of that, it's possible to be hardworking and toiling and discerning and all that stuff, but to be off in a major area, it happens to us all. You have to know that the church of Ephesus was a well-taught church. I'm not saying I'm a well-taught, you're, you know, all that. I'm not trying to, I'm just saying they were well-taught. Paul was at the helm of the church for a while. Timothy was at the helm of the church for a while. Tychicus, who we don't know much about, but he was at the helm of the church. We know the apostle John was pastoring the church. And then we also know that Priscilla and Aquila were were, were teaching and leading people in Bible studies and things like that, a husband-wife team. And we also know, in addition to that, that, that Apollos, who Priscilla and Aquila helped disciple, he was there teaching and preaching among them. This is a well-taught church. How would you say, hey, we had Pastor Paul and Pastor John? Like, yeah, I'm going to that church. Anyone else? Yeah, well-taught church. So you, you know that it's a well-taught church. Nevertheless, the Lord had something against them, and this is scary. Their error was that they abandoned the love they had at first. There was a lot going on, but they had left their first love. They had lost the love for the Lord they had when they first knew him. Listen, duty and doctrine and diligence, they're all commendable. Amen? They're great things. But Jesus saw that they had lost their fire. They had lost that burning love for him that they had in the beginning. That zeal for him, the zeal for his name, a love for him, a sacrificial love. They just, they lost it. And I know there's some contrary thoughts because they're doing all these things and yet Jesus sees the heart of the matter. You've left your first love. There's a, there's a love factor that's gone. It was a love they had at first. They had abandoned their first love, Jesus said. You abandoned, that's the word for forgive. You have forgiven your first love. It's often translated, not, not here, but the word is Abandon is forgive. Like, what, what does God do with the rightful claim he has over us when he sins, when, he, when we sin and he forgives us? He abandons it. You've been forgiven. It's gone. Right? It's also translated forsake. You have forsaken your first love. You have abandoned your first love. You have left your first love. You have divorced your first love. There's different ways of translating it there, but you get the idea. Jesus is saying that Ephesus left their first love. And I think there's something to that for us, that when you love Jesus, you can't help but tell people about him. When you love Jesus, you can't help but lead people to know him more and more fully. You can't help but arrange your life and your time and your energies and your money and all that stuff towards him and towards his goal and towards his mission because you love him above all. And when you leave your first love, some other love comes in there. Some other priority jumps in there. 
And you might be doing a lot of great things. But Jesus comes and says, man, all the things are going on, but there's a heartbeat that's missing. And I think that's what's going on here with me. And I think it's going on in this church. And it could be because of me. It could be whatever it is. I don't know. But I know what I see and what he says, they don't match up. Like I said, it starts with me. So are, are you convicted? Imagine how I, I am, I'm pretty convicted here. But there could be that connection between leaving your first love and a lack of evangelism, a lack of discipleship, a lack of bringing people into the kingdom. It could be that we have left our first love and we've picked up another. Again, you're doing great things. I'm doing great things. And so if that's true for us, if we're doing things for his name, yet there is a fruitlessness that is present within us, and it's evidenced in what we were seeing when we were raising our, raising our hands. If that's true for us, maybe that we have a competing love, corporately and individually, whatever it might be. We've abandoned our first love, even though we say we love Jesus, but we got to know about his definition of love. The question is, how do we regain that first love? How do we Get on fire for the Lord again. Individually, you. How do you get on fire for Jesus again? In your own life with him. How do I do that with me? How do we do that together? Jesus makes it pretty simple. He gives us three R's for the restoration of love, the recovery of love for him. And this is important because before we go make disciples, we better make sure we're disciples. <laughs> he gives us three R's. Look at them. Verse 5. This is what I want you to do. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen, repent, and do the first works you did at first. The, work, the works you did at first. Three R's. Remember, repent, and I'm adding redo. Right? Makes it helpful for us. Remember from where you have fallen. They had forgotten Jesus. They had forgotten their love for him. We're forgetful. Are you forgetful? They forgot from where they had fallen. They forgot what the Lord saved them from, how much they needed him, how his grace overflowed to him, how merciful he was, how he flooded into their life, how desperate they were for you, for, for him, how he came and gave them a love they, they never experienced before, how he flooded into their life and lit a switch that they had never seen before, how he transformed them. They forgot all of that. They, they had forgotten it. They knew it, but they forgot it. They weren't living in light of that. They weren't living in that relationship anymore. They become perfunctory. Jesus says, remember. We need to remember. 
Do you remember? Secondly, repent. I'm going to keep it simple today. Repent. Repent from their sin of failing to love the Lord God with all their heart, with all their might, with all their soul, and all their strength. This is the command. And that implies that there's another love. We have to ask ourselves, what is the love that has taken first place in our hearts over Jesus? Let the Spirit sort that in your soul. What's taking place of that first love? You have to repent. Turn from it. Let the Lord put it in its place. It might be a good thing, but it's not good if that good thing is in first place. That leads to the third R. So we must repent with the Lord. That's, that is that it's sin, that our love on the throne is, is not him. And we must turn from it and turn to the Lord. And that leads to the third R, which is redo. This is the action item. So we're to remember, we're to repent, to turn from it. But then he wants us to turn towards something. I want you to redo the things you did at first. Turn from your sin and redo the works you did at first. What did it look like when Jesus was on the throne at first in your life? Let me ask you that. When you were obsessed and preoccupied with loving him and obeying him and everything else was put in its place. What did the priority of your life, of my life, look like? How radically were you changed? I mean, I got rid of music that I had listened to forever, like secular music. You go, well, that's legalistic. It's like, no, I love Jesus, and this stuff just was repeating junk in my head, so I got rid of it. It was gone. I didn't want a competing love. Relationships that I had had with people for a long time, gone. Like, oh, well, that's not loving. That's, no, competing love. I couldn't have it. It had to be him. They had too much of a power and a hold on me and the drug association, all that stuff, whatever it was, gone. Things I watched, gone. Time spent, shifted, different things started. See, there was a repentance. There was a turning away as he became the first love of my life. But then there was a turning towards. It's like, the Word of God, there was a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. I was devouring the Word of God all the time, listening to messages on this thing called tape. Over and over, I just couldn't get enough. I was listening to, to the Word of God always. Praise music began to fill my musical library. The songs I wrote started to change and to be glorifying to God. Everything about my life started to shift. There was a radical transformation in my life. He became first, most, best. I loved him, and I started telling everybody about him. Started sharing the gospel with people, and I would have this argument with him, like, I'm so embarrassed to do this, but I just got to get over this. I, 
I love you more than I love the embarrassment of my own self. And I, anybody else struggle with that still? He became number one. And you just, and he took me places. And I went around the world and, you know, I led worship and all these things. He just raised me up because he was the middle. It's just whatever he wanted to do is where I went. Whether it was across the street or whether it was giving or serving, in whatever capacity did not make a difference, I just was his. First love. Go redo. Now, some of you might be going, I never experienced that. Are you born again? You're like, well, that's judgmental. Are you born again? Because when you are changed, you are radically changed. Jesus Christ flips on a light in your life. And it might be gradually over time that he does that, and we have that experience. Or it might be some radical moment. But there is a shift in your life from darkness to life. It happens when he comes. And he comes and woos you. He convicts you over your sin. And you go, I can't do this anymore. I can't live in the darkness. I cannot. I've got... I believe that you died and rose again and there's a switch that comes on in your heart and God makes you new and you don't understand everything, but you're changed. And, and the darkness becomes real in your heart and you're just like, I got to get this goodbye to this. It's got to go. And there's a process where the Holy Spirit begins to clean house in your, in your life and life floods in and darkness goes out. And you get the, the whole Peter conversation while your old friends are going, well, you don't know why you aren't hanging out with us anymore or, you know, doing all these things. You're just like, I'm light in your darkness, man. I can't live with darkness anymore. I'm changed. I'm born again. And you become my people, all you weirdos. You know? And there's a sweetness of fellowship because we've all been saved by the King. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We have fellowship in the light. Make sense? If that hasn't happened, don't pretend to be churched. That's horrible. Let the Spirit convict you now and put your hands and say, I don't know what that is. I haven't had that. And you must be born again. And Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. He's done all of it. He died. He rose again. He's going to empower you with this Holy Spirit. And all you do is believe and submit and that belief is translated into action through faith. It's just beautiful. You just believe in Him. Right now. Right now. And your life changes. My life was changed. What about you? And what happens over time as we allow the old loves to creep back in? And my playlist starts to go back to things that it used to be because, oh, I like the way they play and I begin to justify stuff. Go redo, Matt. Oh, well, I don't want to be legalist. You're thinking too much. Just come to me. Come to me, Matt. Abide in me and let me give you my life. I think that's what we're struggling with. I'm struggling with. Anyone else? Is it just me? Anyone raise your hand if that's you. If it's not, I praise God for you. But if that's you, you're going, man, I've got, this is what's going on. Good. All seven or eight of us. It's awesome.
So, remember, repent, redo. And like Peter after the resurrection on the shores of Galilee, Jesus says to him once again, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then he gives a warning. If you don't, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If we don't, then Jesus can come and remove the lampstand of this church because it's his church. And he can say, you're no more. Now, I don't like, I like the carrot. I don't like the stick. Anyone else? But he has the right to judge us. This is not about salvation and taking away our salvation. This is about because you're loveless, because you're disobedient, I'm going to, I'm going to disband you. You're done. And I think that's what happens to churches. Is in moments like these, they don't have, and by God's grace, may we, let's just say, they don't have the discernment to understand it's a spiritual situation, it's a spiritual matter that we've, we, there has to be a heart change within us. It's not a, organizing any of the armies. It's not a, a rallying. It's a responding to Jesus Christ, just leaning into him, abiding in him on a personal level, on a collective level. And instead, what the church often does when they're in situations like that is they go to secular means and they try to entertain people into the kingdom. They try to catch people with nasty bait. It's not the way the Lord is going to work. It's not going to work that way here. This is going to be a genuine move of his Holy Spirit among people who don't deserve it. And he's going to shine big. And I'm looking forward to that. Amen? So when Jesus says, go and make disciples, number one, am I a disciple? Let's start there. Amen? But not, and just as a disciple says, he just says, whatever you want. However you want me to do it. Wherever that is, whatever that looks like, whenever that is, you are Lord, and I follow you. That's what he desires for me and for us. And he's calling us to make disciples. And so let's be disciples committed to him under his authority. And then let's learn what a disciple is and how to make them. And let's step out in faith and let's watch God do something awesome. And a year from now when we go... Hey, how many of you have known Jesus? Got a bunch of little babies crying in here. Amen? Not for the sake of numbers, but for his glory, because he said that's what we're to do. And we got a bunch of spiritual moms and dads who know how to carry and to care for each one of them, right? And to love them and to teach them. Anyways, he goes on and talks about the Nick, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I won't talk about that. But verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who obeys, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, this is what believers do. We believe, we respond to the king. Let's pray. Lord, this is a little long, but we want to thank you for the word here. Refresh this church by your grace. Cause us 
to put you on the throne and to be our first love as we individually remember and repent and redo. Lead us in those things. Help us not to walk away from this moment. And I ask this in your name. Amen.